0: this episode might be my favorite title of any episode that we've yeah. recorded <laughs>
1: i was very proud of this episode still am very proud of this episode.
0: yeah yeah this this is this is the first time you started making up words uh-huh yeah like like linalool yeah it's the first appearance of Yeah. and i mean think all. and i think toward the end of this one was you actually said
1: the name of this episode needs to be cat pee cat yep. pee and old lady perfume cat pee and old lady perfume exactly yeah this was our first i'm not gonna say dipping our toe in because we were more like ankle deep in this one about aroma chemistry and flavor science, yeah. um, and this concept of aroma equating to quote quality, and I was sort of I was getting my science on on this one, and uh, it would prove to be a popular episode and one that launched numerous other episodes talking mm-hmm. about sensory science. Uh, yeah, I just it's I like it. I'm very yeah. Proud I
0: I am too, and you know it also I think it set. A bar for us and and so the listeners understood that okay they're not just talking about growing hops if if i'm starting a hop business i need to know how to grow i need to know how to deal with the business side of things with my brewers i need to know about infrastructure on the farm well all of that had been covered early on but this to me was a was kind of a hockey stick left turn of guess what if you understand this you can be a next level partner with your brewers Mm -hmm. you can really help them to understand it adds to the, your ability to market to them. It adds to your ability to grow and understand chemically and biologically what's going on. It was, it was to me, a next-level situation and really set the bar for what we were going to do with this show.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And we were we were building off of who we were at Gorse Valley, you know, in our last tagline, you know, we science the shit out of beer. That's what we do. We know about the science. We understand the all those nuances and we, like, to, or at least I like to communicate about those. It's a rich, rich tapestry.
0: <laughs> you're, you're just hoping one year you end up with a new word in the urban dictionary and can say, "I made that up," and uh, everyone thought it was real. Uh,
1: is that is that what it is? <laughs> Sorry, mm-hmm. Greg, you lose. This was fake. Yep, these are all fake words. <laughs>
0: all fake words.
1: Yeah, this was. We were we were starting our science, sciency science lineage. I think with this episode, this is really kind of the first part of that, and. I like what you just said, too, about if we could educate people on this aspect and build their toolbox of of topics to, to engage brewers with, to show them that you're just not some rube with a garbage bag full of hops, mm-hmm. right? Um, you have some insight here and some value to add. And we were talking about this kind of aspect of who we were as hop producers and sellers. We built off our skill sets. We are scientists and engineers. We understand these sorts of things. So we've leaned into the science part of it. Other people need to have a different bent. And later on in in future episodes here, we talk about sort of the marketing aspect. Who are you and what is your elevator pitch in this episode? Display some of who we were and why we do what we do and why I still do what I do like with the Siebel Institute, because I found that what most brewers don't understand this stuff, they understand it intrinsically as a, as an artist but not so much as a scientist, mm-hmm. let's say. So yeah, that's where I stand
0: on that. Yeah, and the trick the trick is showing them that you understand it. And some of them don't want to understand it, let's be honest. It's the artistry above the science. Mm-hmm. But for you to understand it as a grower and and as a salesman, almost more so than as a grower, <laughs> becomes right. very important.
1: Absolutely. It's all, it's, it's about, I mean, how often are you going to really Get into the weeds as we do in in a lot of those details uh, on little, like you said, little and all those other words I made up uh, with the brewer very, very, very rarely. But, you know, sometimes all you got to do is drop a few of those things and suddenly people's opinions change of you if, to your point, the brewer's interested or at least open to understanding what it is that you're trying to say. Because some are not. Some are like, "Is it juicy and dank?" That's all I care about. I, I recall you 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 mentioned dank on this episode mm-hmm. as well. You were uh, you were
0: you can you can tell when you speak the way you you say certain words with disdain, like dank. And then there are words like linalool, where it's rolling off your tongue, like it, How about like the that? the retro nasal of you of you saying that word, like you you. <laughs> I can tell you're getting joy out of enunciating it. <laughs>
1: Something that doesn't smell like cat piss. Cat pee. Mm, My favorite.
0: Mm. (laughs) 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 We're going to talk about hop aroma today. And one of the favorite things that I've always found when you, James, talk about aroma and flavor is, wow, this one smells like cat piss. Total cat
1: piss. Absolutely. Ugh. God. This is not a good way to start this conversation. <laughs> 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 mm. Good thing I got coffee right now instead of beer, otherwise I wouldn't be able to drink it.
0: Mm-hmm. So how do... We, we can subtitle this one, how to... You know, why you shouldn't drink things that smell and or taste like cats Exactly,
1: yes. It's, it's half to do with chemistry and half to do with, with your, or in this case, my unfortunate ability to be really, really sensitive to that group of chemistry. Because some people will get a hop or a beer, like uh, something made with citra, you know really heavy citra bomb, and they'll call it Juicy. Uh, what the hell? Juicy isn't a flavor. What do you mean juicy? So you start really poking at them, and this took me quite a while to, to come to you. What I realized was is that, so in that hop, you've got a lot of citrus compounds, thus the name, Citra. But then you've also got this other compound, sulfur compounds. And in this case, they're thiols and mercaptans that will do, I, I call it, the, the sulfur compounds add a floor so they add foundation under maybe a, a fruity flavor or a floral flavor that gives them a sense of depth. And when added in significant quantities under heavy citrus, people get like this really fruit-juicy, deep citrus flavor. To me, because I'm a super sensor for thiol compounds, all I can smell is cat piss. That's it. And so I don't even smell the citrusy part. I smell the cat pee part and I can't get past it in very super teeny tiny quantities that, that hop citra is, is great for me, but other people just want boatloads of it because they're not sensitive. They don't find that, that component in it. They're either, you know, have really low sensitivity to it or they're the, the mixture of that compound those sulfurs and and the citrus compounds they're not registering it in their in their on their palate as you know sulfury they're registering it as quote juicy that's that's the magic of of aroma and flavor in hops and beer is that it's it's not linear
0: and i'm going to say unfortunately when a hop variety gets hot and exciting the the easy button there is oh let's use more. Totally. Or let's make a single hop something using this. And right now it's tw- early 2019. Citra is, is the hop at the moment. And it's been a one of
1: there. the hops. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, it does have that depth, that, that aroma and flavor thickness, that uh, something that's very bright and has one sort of one major dominant chemical group you know sort of like a, a one note we talked before about you know having a having a wide palette and instead of having just primary blue you've got 30 different blue colors
0: and really the the, the, the descriptive term juicy to your point juicy is not a flavor and all it makes me think of are like the back of a pair of stretch pants quite honestly uh, nice um, yeah and not in a, not
1: I mean, in, not in a good way yeah. usually i call that moist because you know oh, everybody loves oh, that word. That's an even yeah, worse everybody word everybody loves that word. Um, <laughs> I think that's a great way to to kick off this discussion about aroma and aroma chemistry and start to maybe demystify it. The importance of aroma chemistry in hops is cr- critical for everybody involved here in all three points of our triangle. So I think we let's do our best to to hit, you know, let's divide up the episode into into each group and and um since I'm the aroma chemistry dude, why don't you just toss some some topics my way, and we'll we'll swing at them.
0: Sure, sure. Well, I think it probably starts as the as the drinker, from a perception perspective. There, there's aroma and there's taste, right. and you you see people who are professional tasters mm-hmm. who will. Uh, I, I always think of wine more than beer as the example of swirling the glass and mm-hmm. all that. But if you could start, I think a little bit with how aroma is perceived in both the, the smelling of the beer and the tasting of the beer, how all that works biologically, I think would be important.
1: That's really, really cool. Uh, and it's cool as a biologist to say that because we don't know 100% why, but we know how this, all this stuff interacts. So you've probably heard, well, you know, if you don't like the taste of it, plug your nose because most of your taste is, is perception is in your nose, right? Well, no, what you're talking about there is aroma and your, your taste buds are the ones that are firing and triggering certain groups of flavor, not aroma. So salt, sweet, bitter, you know, those are tastes. Um, and to some extent astringency, which is, uh, actually not a receptor on your tongue, uh, astringency, much like, uh, spiciness or like capsaicin hot sauce spicy is an irritant pain reaction so let's not throw that in there that's going down the rabbit hole but it's an important combination for sensory experience is taste and aroma and so like when you see people swirling their glasses or slurping the idea here is that all these aroma molecules they're the ones that contribute things like floral and fruity and earthy and musty and as much as i hate to say this word dank these are all aroma molecules and by nature aroma molecules are volatile that means they like to they take very little energy to go from liquid to gas form and once they're in the gas form then we can smell them so when we're swirling the glass when we're swishing it around in our mouths we're also uh, we're adding energy and that's helping to force those chemicals out of solution and into the air so that we can perceive them against our sensory receptors how's that sound
0: that that's a mouthful <laughs> haha <laughs> uh, I, I'm gonna throw a wrinkle in there for you because I I happen to be rereading at the moment beer by Charles Bamforth a gr- oh, great great in depth uh, but i'm I'm in the middle of the section on foam. yes and mouthfeel and how um, how important foam is to beers especially certain types of beers and I have to imagine that that is also critical
1: to to aroma and to taste. Charlie has forgotten more about foam chemistry than I will ever know <laughs> um, but it is hyper and it's because if we look at the foam itself as part of the sensory experience it's not doesn't just look sexy. It's doing a very important thing. Uh, the foam bubble itself is has two regions on it. Uh, the inside of the bubble, the outside of the bubble. And we call those hydrophobic and hydrophilic regions. So water loving and water hating. And this bubble is formed by carbon dioxide. Actually, carbon dioxide is a really great solvent. It can strip Aroma out of a beer. That's why a lot of times in the brew house, when you get a CO2 blow off from the fermenter or from a bright tank or something like that, and it just smells great in there, it's like, well, dude, there goes all your aroma. The CO2 stripping it out of the beer. In your pint glass, that's sort of a good thing because it's taking, specifically, the foam is really good at taking those molecules that don't like water. So the water-hating ones, the hydrophobic ones, and carrying them, stripping them out of the beer, and then bringing them up to into your face. And the foam is very important in bringing all of those aroma molecules up to the surface and having them ready to be experienced, as opposed to having them dissolved in the liquid and then the heat from your mouth and all the agitation from from swishing and swallowing to hopefully get them... Into the air so that you can sense them. The foam has already done that for you. Makes sense.
0: It does. It does. I'm just sorry. I'm picturing beer, <laughs> drinking coffee, wishing it was beer. <laughs> totally. So so don't get upset when when there should be the right amount of head on your beer. I guess uh, for the full experience. Absolutely. You don't want half a glass of head, but but none is so there's you know you tilt your glass, you pour your beer. You, you you want something on there on top. It does add to that experience certainly if it's brewed So so the different types of aromas. You you used you know you said dank. Ugh, I hate that <laughs> with, word uh, with with dismay.
1: But but it's I hate I, I hate said, it. But it's a really good descriptor. I never have to tell anybody what dank means when I say it.
0: I get the imagery of, you know, being in the basement and it's moldy and mildewy. That's dank. It's humid.
1: It's it's stuffy. Well, that's because you're an old man. Everybody else associates it with pot.
0: Oh, okay, yes. That's probably a more <laughs> accurate descriptive term. So in terms of, of how aromas are classified and, and put them into layman's terms as far as, because there are, of course, the way brewers and, and Cicerones will talk about that, But to a generic beer drinker, and I'll put myself in that category, you know, I don't know what piney really is supposed to mean unless it it literally means eating pine needles, which it may. Um, So take us through, if you could, the way aromas are typically classified
1: and maybe some typical styles that go down those routes so people can connect the dots. You bet. Absolutely. So I like to classify certainly hop aroma into five different groups. And sometimes I make the argument for four, but let's just talk about five. And I I sort of list them off uh, in classes based on their how easily they are to volatilize. So how delicate they are. Let's think about them like that. And the first one at the very, very top, the ones that are really flighty and hard to get a hold of are the floral and fruity compounds. Um, Perfume. There's a reason why they use, these compounds are used in perfume, <laughs> because they volatilize very, very easily. Perfume would do absolutely, it would be pointless if, when you put it on your skin, all the molecules were so heavy and big that they never flashed off into the air and people did never ever smell them. So that's the idea behind, you know, you've got these, these floral and fruity compounds that are super light and super... Uh, Low energy, we call it. So that would be like uh, compounds linalool and geraniol and citronellol. So all of these compounds that smell like flowers. So if you ever have a hop and you rub it in or a beer and it's like, wow, it's got this really floral, interesting, you know, nature to it. Then you know that those compounds are really light, really airy, and typically are found in the largest concentrations in noble hop varieties like uh, Holotower and that kind of
0: stuff. So, so what beers would I would I typically order? I mean, think
1: about national ones that, that people would have access to. Where, where that's where you're headed. Think about lagers. Think about traditional English ales. Think about you know old old world beer styles. That's where you're going to find these. You're going to find these hops in Belgians. You're going to find them, you know, in in that in that realm. You're not going to really find them so much in IPAs. You're not going to find them in stouts so much. Uh, but you're going to find them in those in those pilsners and lagers and whatnot, Al- alts and.
0: And when you've got when you've got these varieties that provide those types of notes, you you see plenty of brewers adding, flowery adjuncts oh, like totally. hibiscus yep. and things yep. like that. So is that to emphasize a hop that's already doing that, or maybe to counteract a different hop that does not provide that, or is it, is it? It depends. You can it depends it depends
1: like in the case of hibiscus hibiscus has a, a considerable amount of ascorbic acid and vitamin c and so it, it brings a tartness to the to the beer as well as a bit of that floral flowery kind of thing but hops themselves if you're using the right hop it's got as much or more of those floral compounds in them than most flowers that you would think of in potpourri so uh, you know if you're if you're after Linalool, as a as a you know as our friend Dan calls it, old lady perfume, uh, then that's where you're going to go. That's what it smells like. The addition of other compounds like jasmine flowers is a very very distinctive perfume comes from jasmine that you're not going to get from hops, but they're the same compounds. It's just in a different ratio.
0: Gotcha. And there's the there's the and I will say there's there's the added. Marketing spin of adding flowers as well, which is nothing to do with flavor and
1: everything to do with, oh, wow, that sounds good. Yeah, of totally. Nice. Totally. Uh, uh, the next group would be like the piney and the herbal. So when I say piney, yes, I'm talking about pine needles. So some people call cascade piney. It smells like pine cones. So we're talking about uh, the same compounds that are in pine salt, alpha and beta pinene. They are volatile. It's, you know, pine pitch, pine sap, pine tar they're volatile, but they're, they're not like as light and airy and fluffy as, as the old lady perfume, right? So, so they take a little bit more energy to, to become, uh, volatilized. Same thing with the herbal compounds. Uh, the main herbal compound would be humulene, which is one of the, the major hop oils. And they're responsible for this herbal kind of nature. Some people call it tea or green tea. Other people call it hoppy. So I, which is about as bad as dank, but, <laughs> but, but the, 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 this herbal quality that characterizes hops as hops, and there's really no other way to describe it other than hoppy. It's usually a blend between uh, humulene and its sister compound, caryophyllene, which we'll talk about in a second. So these compounds are very much uh, center point in varieties, like uh, anything bred from uh, Brewer's Gold. So Brewer's Gold is one of those old, old, old world varieties that were bred from a wild female found in Canada way back in the day. And so you're talking Brewer's Gold, Galena, Nugget, uh, Glacier, Chinook. So all of these types of varieties have a very heavy herbal component, Eroica, and some of the, and because it's not in favor right now in the beer brewing communities, these varieties can be hard to find. But back in the '70s and the and the '80s, that's really what you got, man. Uh, that that's all that there was. So, love them or hate them, they are very important. Brewer's Gold happens to be one of my favorite hops. It's very underappreciated. It goes really, really well and balances out against heavy malty beers. Because last thing, because we're also pulling in a lot of flavor esters from from heavy malts and the yeasts that are used there. So you usually want something to counterbalance that floral compounds or ester compounds, sometimes fruity. So you go for an herbal or a pine to kind of be like on the other side of the color wheel, so to speak. And uh, so you'll find those in, in usually heavier malty beers, or at least I hope so. That's where I look for them. Scotch ales, uh, certainly barley wines. Um if, they're, if anybody's going to make anything imperial in order to counteract a lot of that just smack you in the face uh, booziness, then let's look for some herbal hops in that.
0: Huh. Okay. Interesting. Uh, so what's, uh, what's our next flavor, our next aroma? I
1: would say on? sort of on, uh, so the penthouse was uh, Old Lady Perfume. And the, (laughs) is that going to be the, is that going to be the title of this episode, Old Lady Perfume?
0: Old Lady Perfume, absolutely. Yeah,
1: and then, so down from that, the piney and the herbal, then we got tropical and citrus. So, and again, these are the, these are the order in which sort of the energy it takes for them to go from, from your beer up your nose. And so, which is interesting. You would think that tropical and citrus, being all the rage right now, uh, would you say, wow, it's really impactful. They're like kicking me in the face with these tropical and citrus flavors that, that, that it would be super volatile, but they're not. So it takes a lot of them, a lot of those compounds, just the concentration in order to really kick you in the teeth. So if you look at the human sensory ability in like parts per million, parts per billion, uh, we're sensitive to these compounds sort of in that middle range which is also a reason why it's sort of right in the middle of the list. They, they span the, the spectrum of bright and lemony. So d so that's the stuff that they put in lemon heads to make them taste super bright lemony. Uh, all the way to tropical fruit, pineapple, and almost like overripe fruit. So we get we're starting to get into the quote juicy realm again as you see sort of the, the chemical partners that are on the f- couple of floors below this one, you'll start to understand how this concept of juicy comes about. I think um, to, to talk about styles of beers that you're going to find these in today, like all of them, <laughs> it's like, it's like the thing to do right now is, is citrusy and, and tropical fruity.
0: Yep. All, all your IPAs are, oh, are totally. doing this. Yeah. Just, Just, And to your point about, it's it's interesting that you need, you said you need
1: a lot of this to create an impact. Well, as compared to uh, some of the other compounds, and, and also a lot of hops, because these compounds aren't necessarily in as high a concentration in the hop cone as some of the ones that we talked about earlier, like linalool. So you need more of those, of the hops in the beer in order to bring that character out. Unfortunately for some of us, me you're going to bring along a lot of other compounds too that are going to impact uh, that flavor. It's it's not just sort of a oh I need more citrus character so I'm just going to load it up load it up load it up uh, in the in the dry hop. Well, you're going to also bring in a lot of other stuff you may or may not want. So that's just not so good. So moving down the line here, uh, then we've got our earthy and spicy. Compounds. So when I talk about spicy, I'm talking. I'm not talking about like like I said, capsaicin spicy. I'm talking about clove and nutmeg. You know, typical spice island kind of spices. Uh, These are very typically very large compounds. They are. They tend to be more oil loving than they are water loving. And same thing with the earthy compounds. Down here is where we get sort of that uh, black tea flavor and black currant. Uh, Even some leather kind of kind of aromas live down in this range they are definitely not in high concentrations some of these concentrations uh in hops are at you know 0.001 percent so very tiny but yet the human sensory apparatus is sensitive to them in the low parts per billion threshold so even though there's just a little bit in the hop we we happen to be quite sensitive to them balancing them out can be quite tricky
0: Sounds like you can overdo it very easily. There, you can
1: o- you can overdo it very easily, but these compounds are also extremely heat sensitive, so they can be lost upon drying the hop. Then you know you're you're losing a dimension to that to that hop. Like Cascade has a has a considerable amount of black current body in it, but dried at temperatures over 100 degrees, you flash most of those off. So brewers are missing out there. And then to, to speed this along a little bit, getting down to the the lower bottom level are the sulfur compounds, the ones that I just love to hate. Those are the ones that are responsible for all of the popular rage in the patented hop industry right now. Cat piss, that's where your cat pee lives. Interestingly, these compounds are also very, very small quantities, but whereas humans are sensitive to the citrus and some of the, the herbal or a spicy characters in the parts per billion range the sulfurous compounds we are sensitive to in the parts per trillion range trillion with a t uh as i as i tell the students i said imagine a sandbox full of white sand and one grain of pink sand and being able to walk up to it and say there it is that's what i'm talking about parts per trillion very tiny and there's all kinds of biological reasons for that but they also can act to people who aren't as sensitive to sulfur they can also act to bring a a depth and a richness to those tropical and citrus flavors because they're very closely, closely related on their energy scale. So it would be like the difference of having a pineapple that's not quite ripe and a pineapple that's about ready to rot. So that really, you know, ultra intense pineapple flavor can be thought of as being a combination of of the sulfury compounds along with the, the pineapple compounds. So hmm.
0: what would be an example of a beer style that would anything
1: that? hazy? <laughs> anything
0: hazy.
1: <laughs> okay. Right now, anything hazy, hazy IPAs, you'd see that in IPAs all the time. Cit, uh, you know, Citra, Amarillo, Mosaic, Denali, all of these hops are, have a considerable amount of sulfury compounds in them uh, called thiols and mercaptans. And, as humans, we are sensitive to them evolutionarily. So it's sort of is like a, in amongst a by itself, that sulfuriness is what skunks smell. It comes out the back end of a skunk. We also added that compound mercaptans, methyl mercaptans to natural gas and propane so that we can smell it when there's a leak. So taken by itself, it's god awful, but you add it in with just a little bit of these other compounds, and it can it's sort of like a, an aroma modifier, and intensifier, unless you happen to be really sensitive to it, and then it just smells like cat pee.
0: So it, it takes a very special person as a brewer, I have to imagine, to recognize when that is going to create what they're looking for, because there, there, there is such an art to mixing this with others so that you don't just get the skunk.
1: Oh, yeah, totally. Exactly. And you've got to know when to add it in the boil. Like, so if, if you don't want the skunk, but you want everything else that's in that hop, then you put it in during the boil because those compounds are very heat sensitive and they will just flash off during the boiling process. So they won't be left in the beer. Like, if you use CTZ in Columbus, which is very sulfury and oniony, uh, and you put that in the dry hop, guess what? (laughs) Guess what you're going to get? You got Uh, an OG beer. (laughs) You got an OG beer. Uh, Whereas if you put it in the boil uh, and you're using it as, as a, a bittering hop, then you're going to flash all those sulfurs off and they're never going to make it through to the finished product.
0: Okay. So that, so that seems like as good a time as any to, to move away from these five classes and talk about the the whens and the hows in terms of how you use certain things in order to get those end results that folks are looking for. So you just started talking about the addition timing, which I know is one of the things we wanted to speak about. Um, I think you just covered it very well. Uh, Maybe back up just a tad there for folks that aren't necessarily brewers about the the early versus late addition and just at a very high level how that works in terms of of the addition. We have
1: to think of talked. I talked about energies of these compounds and how much energy does it take in order to get it to basically flash off and fly away. Ideally, you want it to flash off and fly away up your nose, but you don't want it necessarily to happen in the brew house. So keeping that in mind, if you have a compound that's, that is floral, and we know that those take very little energy to go away, you wouldn't put that in the boil side if that's what you, if you, if that's a The the attribute you want to keep. You want to put that on the cold side. So that would be in fermentation or dry hopping scenario, as opposed to something that takes, that requires a lot of heat or a lot of energy to become aromatic. Like we talked about the herbal character, humulene, that actually is by itself really not all that fragrant. It requires oxidation to really become aromatic so we got to boil a living hell out of that molecule it's not very volatile so we can it can survive boiling temperatures no problem and sort of force it to uh to become aromatic so that would be something if you wanted an herbal beer or to really maximize those characters you'd put that in during the boil and maybe even earlier than you would just to get bitterness because it takes a lot of energy to turn that turn that compound aromatic so Understanding the chemistry, what we call physical chemistry of these compounds, is really important for brewers to maximize and or minimize (laughs) the attributes that they're looking for. And unfortunately, it's not something that's well taught uh, in the brewing industry, which is what we're hoping to change through this podcast.
0: I I imagine there's a learning process every brewer goes through when they, they boil off everything they wanted out of a hop or on the flip side. They keep it you know, by adding too early, or on the flip side, by adding too late, they, they lose everything they wanted, and the end result is, is too much or too little, and they go back to the drawing board there.
1: Right, and oftentimes you'll get, we let's go one step further, which is saying, well, I need more, or I got to make sure I have all of the aroma out of the hops into the beer, so when I go to dry hop, I'm going to leave my dry hops sit in that, my hop sit in that beer for two weeks and then I'm going to pull it out because then, you know, it's it's absolutely extracted everything I could possibly extract. Well, I got a news flash for you, kiddos. Uh, at room temperature, the extraction process is done between four to six hours. You're done. Any longer time after that, you start pulling out other compounds that you may or may not want. And that's a lot of times where you get, I don't know if you've ever had a beer that's, oh, you know, really heavy dry hopped or an IPA really heavily dry hopped. And it's got sort of this vegetal kind of astringency underneath sure. Of it. Sure. Yeah, yep, the yeah. They let the dry hop sit on there too long. So you start pulling out all of these gigantic skyscraper sized molecules that you don't necessarily want in your beer. And this blows most brewers' minds when I teach them this, that at room temperature, your your dry hop extraction is absolutely done in six hours. If you're doing it in the cooler at You know, close to freezing, let's say 34 to 38 degrees Fahrenheit, it usually takes up to about three days. Then the extraction is finished. You're done taking out all the good stuff. Notice I did not say anything about flavor development. Mm -hmm. I said extraction. So the chemical extraction is finished. Chemical extraction is time and temperature and concentration, and that's it. There's no other magic that's going on there. So get your hops out of the frickin' beer. Otherwise you're going to start pulling in all this other stuff that you don't want. That blows people's minds. The other thing that blows their minds about dry hop additions is more is definitely not better. And certainly from an efficiency standpoint, remember I said time and temperature are the two of the critical factors for extraction rates, but you've also got concentration. So think about it this way. Think about, you know, the sugar you put in your coffee this morning. You put one teaspoon in your steaming hot coffee and it dissolves. Pretty easy, right? What if you put 40 in there? You probably wouldn't get it all. all No, it's not all going to dissolve. Well, there's a reason for that. There's just no more space in the liquid to dissolve it. Same thing happens with beer and hops. And Tom Shellhammer out at Oregon State, did a great research project where he discovered that the absolute maximum quantity of dry hopping that a barrel of beer can absorb is 1.8 pounds. 1.8 pounds of dry hop per barrel is about as much as you can cram in there and actually get a complete extraction from. So these people that are dry hopping with three and four pounds per barrel, they're wasting money because you're never going to extract it into the liquid. There just isn't enough liquid. To do the extraction hmm. and that just again that just blows people's minds because they think more is better more is definitely not better i
0: can I can only imagine what that maximum rate you know what that's going to end up tasting like when you cram so much when, you, in there.
1: when you're up against the the ropes here regarding time and temperature and concentration you're going to start extracting preferentially extracting compounds that will more easily dissolve into solution and fit in those spaces in between the liquid molecules so you're going to preferentially start extracting compounds and some of those are good some of them are not so good and you're also just moreover just flat out wasting money so for those brewers listening you can cut your dry hopping in half and still get and maybe even get better quality because you're going to do a more complete extraction on the hops that are there
0: so, so what else? On there are definitely two sides to this whole thing. There's where you're getting your aroma from a, a brewing perspective and how you're optimizing that, and there's of course on the growing side how to maximize what you're getting. Um, as you're pr- growing and harvesting and drying and preparing. So, have we have we hit any everything on the brewer side? Before I we think everything that side?
1: we can cover in this time frame. <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: okay, well, what about the 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 one thing? Um, what about different varieties and, and how you serve the beer at the end of the day? Is there an impact there? Hell
1: yes. Uh, temperature has a big, big deal to do. Temperature is a measure of energy. And if you are serving your beer too damn cold, those molecules are going to be so slow and they're going to have so little energy, they're not going to flash off up your nose. And if they're not flashing off up your nose, you're not getting the sensory experience. Same thing. If, if the beer's too warm... Then maybe you're going to start flashing off some of those compounds that you would rather not, like the sulfurs and the, the, the heavier molecules that would normally just go down your gullet.
0: And I'd be willing to bet that the physical limitations being what they are, most, whether it's a tap room, brewery, or just a bar, they've got one cooler at a consistent temperature where all the kegs are lined up and, and hosed yep, totally. up to tap. So it it's not as if they're able to adjust based on the style and and the optimal that's temperature. That's
1: one of the there. one of the reasons why real ales are such a big deal and certain while well, here in the States over in England it's sort of like, well duh, that's how you serve beer at room temperature. Because that style of beer is made to be served at room temperature as opposed to, you know, thirty eight degrees Fahrenheit and yeah, all of your tap lines are running out of one cooler and meh. So Or it may be one of the reasons why you love this juicy, hazy IPA when it's served ice cold, but you sit and you gab with your friends and you've only quaffed down a third of the pint. Forty-five minutes later, it's warm and you don't like it anymore. It's because it's warmed up. And, you know, temperature also has an impact on mouthfeel and just the physical chemistry of the liquid. But, yeah, you you just thought this was easy drinking beer. Well, the, well,
0: it is. I expect it to be served. Oh, to be oh properly. yeah, well, <laughs>
1: you you have way to your expectations are set way too high.
0: C- customer's ah, always right. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Come on. All right, so let's let's hit the grower side now. I, you know, we've talked about hop quality in in depth, and we've talked about it from the sense that you, you you want to be proud of your product, you want to present it in a way that the the brewer understands your product is you know this mythical quality mm-hmm. in air quotes. But for, how does hot production, how, how do hot production practices
1: impact the, the aroma? The aroma compounds themselves are Mother Nature's kitchen. So we have to be you know, willing to accept the fact that we're going to have good years and bad years, even if we do everything right culturally. Mother Nature's cooking. We're just serving the food. Keep that in mind when we're talking about, well, you know, last year these, you know, Centennial were fantastic. And this year they smell like hay sorry, there's not a lot I can do about it. The things that we can do (laughs) something about are harvest timing is number one, and we talked about that in our quality podcast. Get the harvest timing right is number one. Number two, dry your hops with as little heat as possible because all of these aroma compounds, I've been talking about energies, heat is energy. Heat will drive these aroma molecules out of your hops. And as a non-traditional small scale hop grower, you need all the help you can get to compete with the big guys out West that use high heat to dry their hops. So don't use heat. You know, if you need to move a lot of water from your hops, move a lot more air and use dehumidification. So if we're not adding heat, you're keeping those molecules in the hop so that they can go into the beer. Then I would say the third biggest thing is packaging. Making sure you've got these hops packaged correctly. Because oxygen is what's going to start degrading the process. Aside from just, you know, losses due to, to, you know, them becoming gases, these molecules becoming gases, uh, oxygen really gets in and causes havoc and breaks these things apart. And in most cases, it breaks these compounds apart into other compounds that you don't want. (laughs) So... You know your your cheesiness is, is one of those one of those compounds. So isovaleric acid. So we want to keep O2 away from the product, and so make sure you have them packaged correctly. I like to tell people the absolute best thing a hop grower can do is do no harm. Mother Nature's uh, cooking up the feast. We just got to make sure we don't drop it on the floor on the way to the banquet table. <laughs>
0: Starting with yes. cat pee, <laughs> and uh, so much technical jargon here, and so much that goes into the aromas to get just the right th- thing out of them. Final words, I guess, on on aroma, and uh, it, it's so important as a brewer to, to know what you're doing there, it goes without saying, <laughs> on a variety of levels, but on that smell and how it affects the taste, I, I'm just struggling with the... the the marketing side of this at a consumer level, you know, certainly you're going to get a pint or in this day and age more so, you know, folks are are drinking from flights and trying a lot of things. That aroma is so important for the the final taste and the final flavor. would love to hear from some of you, our listeners, you know, in the comments on on things that turn you on and, and almost more importantly, turn you off on aromas. And if you've got questions on what some of these mean in more depth cuz we certainly went into floral versus piney versus citrus the best way to learn is to taste is to go and try yep. stuff yep. it's easy to
1: say totally and you want to i I would add just you know interface as the consumer with the brewer and let them know what you're seeing and what they're what you're experiencing and and brewers it's it's not so much trial and error. There is a lot of science behind this. So I would urge you to learn and dive more deeply into this stuff. It can be daunting, but it's absolutely critical to the outcome and and everything that you're doing. There's so many things you, you don't have control over. This kind of thing you do. So we know how it works. We know what the chemistry is. So uh, if you have questions on it, you can absolutely, I want to hear from you. Ask us questions. Ask us tec- technical questions so we can get back to you. We want to engage with you. We want to make this forum uh, impactful, positively impactful for what you're doing.
0: As a consumer, you know, we sp- we spoke last time about, or, or one one time. I keep saying last time, and depends on what order you're listening to our podcasts in. But when it comes to quality, the fact that... Uh, You need to be educated and just the statement, well, these aren't the quality I'm looking for. That's not good enough. Be educated on what quality is. It's the same thing here. As a consumer, when you're drinking, you need to know what it is. You may know what you like when you taste it or when you smell it, but try and understand a little more about why you like what you like. It, It helps you be... It, it helps you look for the right things. It helps you ask your brewer for the right things. And if you are going to go into growing or home brewing, it
1: helps you know how to how to build toward if the right If you know things. why you like what you like, it's a lot easier to seek out other things that you're going to like than just trial and error and be hor- horribly surprised.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. it's It's tough when you take a first sip of something that you don't like to then go back to something you like and, you know, you need that glass of seltzer in between. Oh, yeah, to cleanse
1: and the- sniffing your elbow and coffee grounds and all kinds of other stuff. I know we're going to call this episode Cat Pee and Old Lady Perfume.
0: Cat Okay, I've written down the Cat Pee, but Cat Pee and Old yep. Lady Perfume. All right, I will, I will make a note of that pairings and, and how you bring them with things, but really to get into some of the, the, the national brands, the folks people will understand. And hey, well, if you're drinking, an example is this. If you're drinking this, this is what we're talking mm-hmm. about. It's tough because I know regionally you and I both are very attuned to what we can get right. around here, um, probably more so than, hey, what am I getting out of a Sam Adams Boston lager that everyone has access to? What are some of the, the aromas that I would associate with that? So that we can make this more uh, digestible by a larger audience, I'll say. Agreed. Thank you for that knowledge dump, and uh, and we, we won't we won't attribute any of the uh, the aromas to that necessarily. <laughs> oh,
1: there is one I
0: can assure you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everyone. Subscribe to the podcast. You know the drill.